Hi everyone, this is Katie, and just a quick note before we start. At the beginning of this episode, we talked briefly about CHOP, the autonomous zone in Seattle formerly known as CHAZ. After we recorded the episode, there was a shooting at CHAZ that left a 19-year-old man dead and another man injured. That story is still developing. As of today, Sunday, the police haven't arrested anyone, and it's not clear that the shooting was connected to CHAZ, but we felt like we should at least mention it. Our condolences to the victims and their families, and to the nation of CHAZ. Enjoy the show. Katie, my friend, how goes it? Pretty good, Jesse. I got a question for you. Are you familiar with the nation of Chaz? Sounds like it might be related to the Chaz Autonomous Zone thingy. Yes, yes, yes. yes. So Chaz has actually been rebranded. It is now known as CHOP, but I'm going to continue to dead name Chaz because Chopped just doesn't have quite the same ring as Chaz, and I'm also opposed to revisionist history. So Chaz, as, as our listeners might be aware... It stands for the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone. And I believe we've talked about it a little bit on the podcast before. This is a a six-block area in Seattle uh, where protesters took over this this area after the police abandoned their police station. And this came after, like, days of unrest and lots of tear gas and rubber bullets and shit like that. Just, like, this, like street battles essentially between police and protesters and this was also where someone graffitied the name of our intern katie Hertzo, right right so my former office is in the Chaz. is in is in Chaz. it has been a requisition that is known all over in seattle is in, it is in the nation of Chaz or chop um so i wanted to check out Chaz for myself because you know i live on as as you know I live in a on an island um, surrounded by a private island surrounded by like alligators and sharks and shit. But so I, I decided I would leave my island and and go check out check out Chaz for myself. And so I did. I went last week, or I guess earlier this week. Time has, of course, ceased to have any meaning. And uh, I saw it, and it looks like I would say the vibe of Chaz was sort of like music festival either before it starts or like on the 10th day after everybody's like sort of haggard and hungover. Um, it, there have been some reports of some drama. I'm sure there's lots of like bickering because that's what happens when anytime you have groups of people, but there has not been like Fox news reported erroneously reported that um, business owners and tenants and Chaz were being, were being basically extorted um, and like not able to leave their businesses. And there were armed guards sort of roaming the area. I didn't see any of that. I was there during the day. So things might be different at night. And I have heard from some residents that it's like deeply annoying uh, because they have like music and, you know, it's just like loud at night and, and the area itself is very gentrified. So what you have is basically a bunch of like Amazon tech workers and other people who are making, you know, $150,000, dollars a year and living in $3,000 a month condos or townhouses or apartments um gazing out onto what was like what used to be a sort of nice urban view there's a park there and now the park basically looks like a homeless encampment although there's some gardens so they're, they're like doing some stuff to jazz it up anyway so i went and walked around Chaz. um didn't see anything too dramatic i did see a woman an asian woman dressing down a white guy for for taking for taking photos but that was sort of the extent of the of the drama that i saw um i went and talked to a couple of small business owners and uh, one of them told me that this uh, Hispanic guy, or Latinx perhaps, although he he seemed like he's more likely to identify as Hispanic than than uh, that particular term, he told me that his so his business had been closed, you know, for months because of the quarantine. And uh, within the first couple of days of the protest, moving up to this area, he'd made up all the money that he lost um, in the quarantine. So in that respect, like it's actually I think it's great. But he also said. You know, I don't think people would be here if they had jobs, which is also probably true. Um, and and his suspicion was that that you know that part of this is protest, but part of this is also just like nothing else to do. And there's a fair number, according to him, it seems like there's a fair number of people who basically don't have homes. Um, he told me about a, a University of Washington student he met who moved over to Chaz because when the dorms closed, she, I guess she was like couch surfing or something and basically ran out of places to go. So when this started, she just like, you know, got a tent and moved to Chaz. Um, so there's also an element of that among, you know, there's just like so much shit happening. Anyway, way less dramatic than I than I'd hoped, honestly. And unfortunately, the uh, fuck Herzog graffiti from uh, the outside of my former building was gone. Oh, that's disappointing. Right. So while I was over at Chaz, um, so I had to take a trip into the city to go there. Wait, can I, can I make one point about the name, actually? Sure. I'm glad they changed it because I was imagining like a commercial for, for Chaz. Not that they would do that because they're anarchist or whatever. But imagine it's like, help us build a new world. Free yourself from the confines of authoritarian capitalism. Come to Chaz. <laughs> 
It just doesn't really have much of like a Dude, ring to it. But you said, what does CHOP stand for? It's CHOP now? Capitol Hill Occupied Protest. That's better. Um, but Chaz, I, I, I don't think it's better. I like Chaz because Chaz sounds like the guy who like date rapes people at the yacht club. It's just a fucking funny name for a group of anarchists. And there's also, so, oh, oh, another, another sort of funny element about this is that, so there's tons and tons of graffiti. I didn't see many broken windows or anything like that, but just a shit ton of graffiti. A lot of the buildings are boarded up. And on some of these buildings, you have, you know, you'll have a black owned business and in big fucking letters, it says like black owned business, queer owned business, you know, just like signaling, like, don't, please don't post up on our windows. Please don't, don't post up on our windows. And then there's a, there's a pot shop um, in this neighborhood, sort of adjacent to Chaz. And the pot shop itself has been, been, it's in a historically black neighborhood. It's been the source of a lot of strife between the neighborhood itself and the people who who live there sort of pre-gentrification and the business owner because it's at a corner where there used to be a lot of drug dealing and a lot of like black men in particular were arrested for like dealing weed on that corner. And now there's this like pot shop that does millions of dollars of business a month. And there's been a lot of conflict, particularly around this exact shop. And I went and I drove by it. And so the shop is covered up with uh with you know plywood fronts to to prevent looting or whatever but there's a huge george floyd mural like over top of this of these plywood fronts and sort of like black lives matter and you just know you just know the dude just like please 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 like black lives matter black lives matter black lives <laughs> yeah. matter you know what i mean um okay so i went and checked out Chaz, but at the same time while i was in the city i uh took the opportunity to get a copy of a book that we are going to be discussing later today. Um, the book is White Fragility by Robin D'Angelo. And I didn't want to pay for the book for reasons that will become clear as we get into the show. I do not want this book to be on the bestseller list. I do not want the author to have my money. So I ended up buying the book off of a guy in Seattle who uh, his his wife or his girlfriend or something owned the book. So they like just left it outside their apartment for me. So I went and picked up the book. I visited Chaz and I had to wait for my wife to do some stuff. So I was sitting in a parking lot at a grocery store, just waiting for her, reading the book. And uh, someone came and knocked on my window and I looked over and there was a black woman and I rolled down the window and she asked me for, for she asked me for 20 bucks. And so I did the thing that you do when you don't want to give, if she had said like five bucks, I would have given it to her, but she asked for 20, which is like kind of a lot. And so I did the thing where it's like, I'm going to like pretend to like look in my bag for, for cash while absolutely trying to hide the fact that I actually have like $20 in my wallet. So I like picked up my bag and I was rumbling through my bag and I put the, I put the book down on the, on the dashboard. <laughs> and so this black woman i say like oh you know just let me look this let me look or whatever and um and and then i like rumble through my bag and say oh you know i totally would but i, I don't have any cash and she looks at the book and she says nice book <laughs> <laughs> and then she asked me to go inside the store where it's parked outside a supermarket and she asked me to go in and get cash back and i said oh i'm sorry i don't have a debit card so i'm reading this fucking like white fragility book and the black woman asked me for money and i just refuse i like lie and i refuse to give it to her and i can just imagine what she was thinking in that moment which was probably like this fucking white fragile bitch yeah well, I did watch her and she did the next white woman she asked actually did give her money. So hey, she got what she wanted. So it all worked out. Yeah. I guess maybe we should say the name of this podcast is Blocked and Reported. I'm Jesse Single. And I'm Katie Herzog. Uh, yeah. If you're if you're new, you can check us out. Uh, Patreon.com slash Blocked and Reported. A lot of good extra stuff there, including we looked at a crazy cancellation perpetrated by none other than the Washington Post. Had a lot of other good stuff recently. Thank you to to people who have donated. Uh, yeah, Blockchain Reported Podcast at gmail.com. Look us up on Apple Podcasts. We got a subreddit, the whole nine yards. Today, we're going to basically devote the whole bulk of the podcast to Robin D'Angelo's book, White Fragility, which came out in 2018. And as Katie will tell you, right now, it has been very popular. It is right now on both the top of the New York Times and Amazon bestseller list, probably because I think we have mentioned Robin D'Angelo in every single one of our podcasts. We are the reason for her success. No one would have heard of her. Uh, yeah, so I actually read White Fragility in the fall. I was working on a piece about diversity trainings that sort of got tabled. Um, so I got a, I had a copy bought for me by an outlet. And I'd been wanting to write about it for a long time. I had like a really negative reaction to it for reasons we'll get into. So, so we're going to really go in deep. We're, we're going to, 
whenever possible, read directly from some passages and sort of talk about them. We don't want to straw man this because the book doesn't need to be straw man because it's it's fairly crazy on its own. We're going to cover what's in the actual book itself. But Katie, you talk to someone who can who can shed a light on what it's like to sit through one of these trainings, right? Right. So Robin D'Angelo, before she wrote this book, she had been a professor at the University of Washington in Seattle, but she really, her career was mostly as a corporate trainer. Um, so she would, you know, there would be some incident or maybe an, an organization, typically like a university or some sort of institution or a big, uh, you know, big Fortune 500 company or whatever, would make it their mission to sort of increase diversity within their organization. And so they would hire Robin D'Angelo, or or there are lots of people like her. Robin D'Angelo is not sort of, is not an anomaly in this particular field. They would hire Robin D'Angelo to come in and do these basically what are like mandatory corporate trainings. And this is a huge business. In 2017, apparently, uh, according to a McKinsey report, the diversity industry was worth $8 billion. So like you can imagine how much it's worth now, especially after the last couple of weeks. Um, so the interview uh, that Jesse was referring to, well, I don't want to spoil it, but basically like there was a, a racial incident at her workplace. And after that, the organization, and this was a nonprofit, mandated that everybody would go through over a year of diversity trainings. And I, I don't know how much this costs the organization. I'm going to assume that it costs them quite a bit, especially for a nonprofit. Um, and so the interview is all about what happened, what this was, what this, uh, what it was like to go through this. Um, and as you will hear, these trainings oftentimes don't work um, either in terms of increasing diversity within an organization or in making people less racist. Um, and in fact, they can have the, they can have the opposite effect. They can be really counterproductive. Um, so that interview will be up. This is going to be released at the same time as the one that you're listening to now. So after you listen to this, I highly recommend you go and listen to that. Yeah, that'll I'll, I'll tie that with a little bonus uh, in the podcast. And we'll, we'll note at the intro to that, that this one will provide a lot more context about the kind of training she received. So yeah, it, it was a great interview. Uh, I'm looking forward to everyone hearing that. Okay, so so we are we are going to tear into this book because I think it's a bizarre book. I think it is a pernicious book. I have so many problems with it. It is shocking to me that so many white progressives think it's good. And I feel like they can't have read the same book as me. Or maybe I'm losing my mind. Maybe I accidentally did like a bunch of acid. This could all be an illusion. All possibilities. Before I do that, I want to quickly make a couple things clear. One is... If the goal is to make members of minority groups feel more welcome in a community of any sort, including a workplace, I am all for that. I also think it's important. I have had a couple fleeting experiences of being, this was in Germany, the only Jewish person in situations where like people were sort of misunderstanding Jewish people or, or, or exhibiting ignorance. It's really uncomfortable. And I think experiencing that day after day in a workplace, especially like a workplace of people who aren't trying to be sensitive, would not be pleasant. So so if the idea is that this training would reduce that, and as Katie and I are going to tell you, we don't think it would, that would be a worthy goal. I'm not opposed to the theoretical goal. I also just want to quickly get out of the way on a couple very basic race 101 things. D'Angelo is right. She is right that some white people sort of instantly clam up or get defensive when you talk about race. As we'll explain, that I don't think that's what's happening here. I think people are more clamming up or getting defensive because the stuff she says is asinine. But there are some white people who don't want to talk about race. There are people of all sorts who don't like the idea that they had some sort of advantage in life, whether wealth, whether race, connections. It's not fun to think that, you know, I, I didn't earn every scrap of what I have. That's a human tendency that she sort of talks about. She's right. Finally, like on a small subset of other issues, like people saying things like, you know, uh, Italians and Irish weren't seen as white. They assimilated. Why? What's why can't African Americans? She she highlights some things that conservatives in particular say, which is weird because the books were progressive. Where I just agree with her. She's right. All that out of the way. Let's just let's just sort of go through this book. Um, Katie, can I start just by like reading a couple excerpts about this core white fragility concept to talk about? Please do. Okay, guys, I'm going to read more than usual. Just indulge me. It's important to for us to be responding to the actual text. D'Angelo's key idea here is white fragility is this, this phenomenon that emerges when white people are forced to talk about race or confront racial privilege. This is, this is all a quote. In fact, when we try to talk openly and honestly about race, white fragility quickly emerges as we are so often met with silence, defensiveness, argumentation, certitude, and other forms of pushback. These are not natural responses. They are social forces that prevent us from attaining the racial knowledge we need to engage more productively, and they function powerfully to hold the racial hierarchy in place. 
These forces include the ideologies of individualism and meritocracy, narrow and repetitive media representations of people of color, segregation in schools and neighborhoods, depictions of whiteness as the human ideal, truncated history, jokes and warnings, taboos on openly talking about race, and white solidarity. Did you notice that um, she views both talking too much and not talking at all as as instances of white fragility? I did. I did. She has a lot of contradictions and basically anything that white people do, except for, I guess, take Robin D'Angelo's classes, uh, is an example of white fragility. Yeah. And and what's interesting is, is sort of what, what comes in this passage. One more. This is shorter. In light of the challenges here, I expect that white readers will have moments of discomfort reading this book. This feeling may be a sign that I've managed to unsettle the racial status quo, which is my goal. The racial status quo is comfortable for white people, and we will not move forward in race relations if we remain comfortable. This strikes me as a very questionable theory of racial change, because the the classic liberal version here is get everyone to realize they're part of the same humanity. Get everyone to realize they have a stake in racial equality. It isn't I'm not saying that this stuff should always feel good or that people shouldn't grapple with their privilege. But but isn't this idea that if someone feels shitty at her trainings, that's a sign they're working almost what you'd expect from a cult leader? This to me is the craziest element of the book. So the book is threaded through with these anecdotes from her trainings, which typically end with like either white women crying, white men like pounding on desks, people telling her that she's bad at her job. And she takes this as proof that she's good at her job, right? So she doesn't actually have any success stories in this book. It's all it's all like the the horrible negative reaction to this. And instead of her saying like, oh, you know, maybe this tactic doesn't work, maybe berating people and calling them racist and telling them that they were born racist and there's nothing they can do about it isn't actually you know, uh, going to be effective in changing hearts and minds. She says like, oh, this is just even more proof that you're actually racist. Imagine if someone was like, Jesse, how's the podcast going? And I was like, it's great. Uh, our downloads are not growing. A bunch of one-star reviews on Apple Podcasts. Everyone, you know, gives us negative feedback. And then the person's like, well, it sounds like it's not going well. I'm like, no, no, that's just blocked and reported fragility. Right, right. And then, and it's also like this concept is like totally unfalsifiable, which other people have pointed out. But like if you say, if you say I am not racist, I do not have white fragility, that's just more proof that you are racist and have white fragility. And by the way, like her definition of, of racism is this this like neo definition that has you know, popped up in recent years, particularly through academia and and social justice activist circles. And the def like, if I think, like the old definition of racism, I would say is like, you know, judging people based on their skin color. Uh, according to her definition, white people are all racist. We are born racist, and nobody but white people can be racist because only white people have structural power. Yeah. And, 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 and th like this definition, like Miriam Webster just actually changed their definition of racism, which I just don't understand. Like, why not just come up with a different word? Why use this term that already exists in a certain context in which people have a very negative reaction to and, and redefine it so that it literally encompasses everybody who every white person, you know, in the United States, in the world, perhaps. I love the way. This is particularly funny in light of the fact that her book is now like was at the top of the bestsellers list or still is. But she repeatedly she says things like, quote, it follows that to name whiteness, much less suggest that it has meaning and grants unearned advantage will be deeply disconcerting and destabilizing, thus triggering the prote protective response of white fragility, end quote. Is there anything in the last five to ten years white progressives have obsessively done more? Talked about more? Yeah. The, by the time her book came out, you know, we're already well into the age of Michelle Alexander and ta Coates and other thinkers who are very important, even when here and there I have disagreements with them. White audiences have lapped up these books, which is good. But for her to say that what, what, what she's trying to do, and I think you've raised this before, she's making claims that are true of white conservatives while trying to sell a book to white progressives because white conservatives are not going to buy a book that calls them racist. I mean, I'm, I'm even uncomfortable saying that about white conservatives because I don't think that all white conservatives, I, like the, she generalizes in a way that I'm deeply uncomfortable with and I don't want to be guilty of the same thing. So I don't want to say like, you know, white conservatives are inherently racist. That is definitely not the audience that she's going to. No, no, no. I, ju I just mean they would... They would not buy a book. I don't think white conservatives in general would. I'm not saying they're racist. I would say they probably would not be receptive to a book like this. That no, tells no. Them Although you know, there, the 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 parallels between 
this and religion are just so stark. You know, there's Incredible. the original sin. The, the original sin is whiteness. And the only way to sort of heal from your, your original sin is to repent over and over and over. And even then... Bless me, Robin, for I have sinned. Exactly, exactly. And it doesn't... And that doesn't even help. Like, she... she the crazy... Like, she, the whole book is about how fucking racist she is, right? So this woman who has spent, like, the last decades as an anti-racist trainer, diversity trainer, also writes about her own racism in this way that if, if she's still racist after 25 years of doing this bullshit, there's literally no help for anybody else. Yes. So what's the fucking point? What's amazing about this and what, what makes it seem like a grift, whether or not it's an intentional grift, and I, I actually don't think she knows she's a grifter. Do you think she knows she's a grifter? No, I think she's a true believer. Yeah. Well, so she has this, this amazing one-two punch of, okay, the two, in my view, tell me if you think there's more, the two main reasons she probably gets so many negative responses. One, which was... was um, excavated very nicely on an episode of Chapo Trap House I'll, I'll link to is these are mandatory workplace trainings. These are people forced to attend these trainings when they could be answering emails. Trainings that will often maybe, you know, people have a lot of shit to do at work. Maybe make them late to take their kids to soccer practice, pick up their kids. These are not settings where you're going to have like an open conversation about race. The idea that if someone reacts negatively to being dragged from their normal job, put in a room with a woman calling them racist, that's white fragility. That's Again, nuts and, and unfalsifiable and cultish. The other thing is, let me just read something and then I'll, I'll explain why I make this point. And I'm trying not to read too much, but here's how, here's how she lays out sort of the racial ideology of the U.S. Quote, the racial ideology that circulates in the United States rationalizes racial hierarchies as the outcome of a natural order resulting from either genetics or individual effort or talent. Those who don't succeed are just not as naturally capable, deserving, or hardworking. Ideologies that obscure racism as a system of inequality are perhaps the most powerful racial forces because once we accept our positions within racial hierarchies, these positions seem natural and difficult to question, even when we are disadvantaged by them. So anyone who grew up as a white liberal obviously has complicated relationships to black people in black America. It's a segregated, messed up country. All of us grew up in being explicitly told that equality is important and that black people aren't treated well. And that doesn't mean that that's the end of the story or that white supremacy doesn't exist, but this totalizing view that all Americans are swimming in, in white supremacist ideology. Did, did that, were you skeptical of that? Oh my God. And especially when she is, her message is geared towards white progressives. Right. So the same people who do talk about race all the time, who do, who do, who care about equality, who care about diversity. She's also saying that these people are like actual white supremacists. Let me read you something else that she wrote on the same on the same note. So she's talking here about what she calls the white collective. There is a curious satisfaction in the punishment of black people, the smiling faces of the white crowd picnicking at lynchings in the past, and the satisfied approval of white people observing mass incarceration and execution in the president. White righteousness, when inflicting pain on African Americans, is evident in the glee the white collective derives from blackface and depictions of blacks as apes and gorillas. Who is she talking about? Who the fuck is she talking about? Who does she hang out with? But this is the thing. But she, but then she can accuse us of white fragility right. because she expressed a view of white people as a whole that is not reflected in any polling like white liberals are now to the left of black democrats on race issues this is this is the grift she said but what you just described is crazy and another version of that like you would think that no time had passed because she also at one point when she's talking about how re reverse racism isn't a thing she says quote a person of color may refuse to wait on me if i enter a shop but people of color cannot pass legislation that prohibits me and everyone like me from buying a home in a certain neighborhood white people can't do that either you, you White people can't do that anymore. That's the Civil Rights Act. Besides these statements that sort of that are mushy, that talk about collective guilt, that just like like vastly simplify, generalize, and stereotype entire races of people, including black people, who she treats as sort of mythical sage like you know beings. Oh, we will get there. There's crazy shit later in the book. So she also just like there's a lot of just like shit that you can fact check that's just verifiably false. Here, let me let me get a couple examples from you. She's talking about voting here. And at the very beginning of the book, she writes, women of color will den were denied full access until the Voting Rights Act of 1965. She phrases that in a way so that it might be technically true because there were, until the Voting Rights Act of 1965, there were, you know, barriers to voting. But 
black women were granted the right to vote when women were granted the right to vote with the passage of the 19th, 19th Amendment in 1920. It's just, but any sort of casual reader is going to look at that and say, holy shit, black women weren't allowed to vote until 1965. At another point, she says that Congress is 90% white. That's not true. And that hasn't been true for literal decades. Currently, it's 78% white, maybe still too high. She says that the people who decide which TV shows we, we see are 93% white. The people who decide which books we read, 90% white. The people who decide which news is covered, 85% white. The people who decide which music is produced, 95% white. Like, how did she decide who is the person who decides which TV shows we watch and which books we read? Like, is she counting publishers here? Is she counting editors here? Is she counting staffers here? It just doesn't make any fucking sense. And then at another point, so she has this long paragraph about Jackie Robinson. And what she basically says is like, White people think that the reason that Jackie Robinson was the first African-American baseball player is because he was the first black baseball player who was good enough to play in the major leagues. Do you think anybody actually believes that? Uh, it's not like the Negro Leagues are a fucking secret. I know. It's insane. Well, well she, she to make these arguments work, she has to like constantly conjure up like the 10% most ignorant white people in the country who, who exist, but A, aren't, there aren't that many of them, and B, they're not the market for this book. It's, and well, she's right. She writes about them as that as though that is the white collective. I mean, this book is written as though she's never met a black person who isn't a diversity trainer, and she's never met a white person who isn't in the fucking KKK. Exactly. That's really well put. That's exactly the problem. And 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 just to close the the circle, I was trying to sloppily draw. So in terms of of white fragility manifesting itself during her trainings, you have this one two punch. Where one reason it might manifest itself is people dragged away from their work to sit in a room with a crazy woman. Two, she says stuff that is just false. That a good faith person who knows anything about the world can say that doesn't sound right to me when people self-righteously tell you stuff that is false you might have a little bit of an emotional reaction to it and i think so much of what she's doing this is another way it's cult like like check check this graph out i'm often asked if i think the younger generation is less racist no i don't in some ways racist adaptations over time are more sinister than concrete rules such as jim crow the adaptations produce the same outcome people of color are blocked from moving forward but have been in place by a dominant white society that won't or can't admit to its beliefs this intransigence results in another pillar of white fragility, the refusal to know. She's basically trying to instill in progressive white people, insecure about their own relationship to black people, a sense of total hopelessness. There is no statistical sense in which it's true that younger people are not more progressive on race issues than older ones. Just whatever question you look at, that obviously doesn't on its own solve racism, but similarly, like... This idea that Jim Crow has just transformed and it's basically the same outcome of black people being blocked from progress. Well, no, like there's still a lot of work to be done, but but the black lifespan has risen a lot. We're well into an important era of decarceration of way fewer black people being prisoned, although there there's still too big a gap. There's all these like these subtle ways in which things have gotten better. They're just erased because to get people to buy into this and to join the cult, she needs to portray the world as apocalyptic so that people will turn off their brains, which is something all demagogues do or a lot of demagogues do. Right. And and it sort of works for her because, as as we mentioned, she has redefined words like white supremacy and racism. So if you redefine those words to make them as broad as possible, sure, technically she's right. If every white person is racist, then racism hasn't gotten any better. But but still, like, yeah, she just seems uh, like historically ignorant. Um, we'll talk a little bit about this later in the segment. But I really think that people would be better off reading some American history than they would reading this book if they actually want to have any concept of what this country has done to people of color. There, I took uh, like one. I I am not. <laughs> I don't know much about this stuff. But I took one class I really loved in grad school on African American history, and and a thing historians and historiographers often talk about is black agency or oppressed people's agency. How do you write history in a way where you don't turn them into pawns who are incapable of any action, but you put things in the proper context? So when she's trying to explain how she doesn't think white supremacy has dissipated at all, she says stuff like this. Although rare individual people of color may be inside the circles of power, Colin Powell, Clarence Thomas, Marco Rubio, Barack Obama, they support the status quo and do not challenge racism in any way significant enough to be threatening. Oh, my God. That's like that's sort of insidious because to take an example we've discussed on the show, the Ferguson protests, there was a black president, his black attorney general, Eric Holder launched a federal probe of the police department there that revealed all kinds of horrible shit about how Ferguson policed its black citizens. To say that that's not a form of progress, that doesn't get us all the way to the promised land, but just pretend stuff like that hasn't happened or that important progressive black district's attorney haven't been elected. 
she's being very opportunistic about history in a way that, in my view, sort of erases black people's actual progress and definitely erases like the importance of things like having a black attorney general who takes the problem of police misconduct seriously. Like, doesn't that have to be part of the story if you want to be an educated American seeking to to get us to the promised land? I mean, she makes black people seem just like utterly helpless against this, you know, like white collective, the white menace. It's just if I were a black person, I feel like I would be insulted by this. I mean, Kala Fasane, who's who's review New Yorker review of this book, we've referenced a million times on this podcast, but I just want to read a section from that. This story makes white people seem like flawed, complicated characters. By comparison, people of color seem good, wise, and perhaps rather simple. This narrative may be appealing to its target audience, but it doesn't seem to offer much to anyone else. At least that's my interpretation, and perhaps D'Angelo will be grateful to hear it. After all, I am what she would call a person of color, and whatever I write surely counts as feedback. Back. it's just like the it looks like a brutal fucking takedown of her I, it really is people should read that yeah we'll, we'll link to it again but but this gets back to what you're saying that that she doesn't for a diversity trainer one does not get the sense reading this book that she has had normal non-training interactions with black people and that sounds like or anybody or anybody with humans <laughs> she may be a robot but like let, let me just one other thing I want to read about about this issue of how she caricatures black people in black opinion. For example, perhaps you've heard someone say, quote, I was taught to treat everyone the same, end quote, or quote, people just need to be taught to respect one another, and that begins in the home, end quote. These statements tend to end the discussion and the learning that could come from sustained engagement. Further, they are unconvincing to most people of color and only invalidate their experiences. Do you think most people of color raising kids in the United States of America in the 21st century do not say things like respect starts in the home or you should try to treat people the same. That's insulting. It makes it as though there's like, there's this one set of sort of liberal social norms that white people hold. And then there's people of color, this mysterious tribe over there. They're all politically radical. They have views white people couldn't understand. I just, who is she to make these sweeping statements about what black people find invalidating or what people of color find invalidating without offering any evidence. I mean, you you would imagine that she would just be utterly humiliated to hear a black person say, like, uh, you know, this doesn't speak to me. But I'm sure she would then just go through one of her, like, abject apologies, which she also talks about in the book. Do you remember that section? Yeah, well, I want to get into that because it, cause the next thing on my list was um, in, in terms of treating black people as, like, just a different species, like, just, I just, I, I know I keep reading. I need to read. There's no way to understand this without me reading a lot of it because it's, it's crazy. This is a part where she's basically saying she, she makes race specific rules for her trainings about who should and shouldn't cry. She literally says to white people, particularly white women, don't cry during the trainings. If you need to cry, leave the room. If black people need to cry, they can stay in the room. So segregated rules for who's allowed to cry and when. That in mind, listen to this. White women's tears in cross-racial interactions are problematic for several reasons connected to how they impact others. For example, there is a long historical backdrop of black men being tortured and murdered because of a white woman's distress, and we white women bring these histories with us. Our tears trigger the terrorism of this history, particularly for African Americans. This fucking woman who is, her job is to make race relations better is telling us that in the 21st century, a black woman in like a consulting firm, when she sees a white woman start crying, what jumps in her head is, oh my God, someone's going to get murdered. In, in this view, it is impossible for a black person to resemble a white person at all. Black people are summoned into existence to express race sentiments, to, to think race thoughts and, and utter race utterances. They only exist to be racialized objects, which is a form of racism. That is what we call that. The fact that she just like evoking the murder of Emmett Till, comparing that to a white woman crying because she's just been called racist in a fucking boardroom is just so ridiculous. And But apparently this appeals to people. I mean, this book, bestseller, she was on Jimmy Fallon this week, although Jimmy Fallon's, I could see his eyes sort of glaze over. And the truth is, you know, this book is so insane that you would think it would be more interesting. It's actually dull. It's repetitive. That's, that's I think, actually the biggest crime of the book. It's super repetitive. It's an academic trying to write, you know, sort of a a, a pop book. Um, and it, it really fails to do just like the basic thing of like create a narrative. But but who's who are the white people trying to be better anti-racist allies who, who read a thing that says, if I cry, it'll make black people think they're about to be lynched, you know, in the break room in 2020. And thinks like this is someone who I should trust on this stuff. And, and it gets worse because she says... 
Quote, for black men in particular, the specter of Till and countless others who have been beaten and killed over a white woman's claims of cross-racial distress is ever-present. Ameliorating a white woman's distress as quickly as possible may be felt as a literal matter of survival. What she's trying to do is make it so that every normal fucking human interaction, the stuff we do among friends and colleagues we respect, is interpreted through the most radical racial lens possible. So you, Katie Herzog, start crying. In this view, a black guy says, wow, I better comfort her or I'm going to get murdered. Right, right. And I cannot imagine that making everyday human interactions, looking at everything through the lens of race is actually going to make improve relationships between white people and black people, for instance. This woman I interviewed who had to do a year's worth of these diversity trainings, she talked about, she told me about an incident in which Robin D'Angelo made a public apology for her co-facilitator because she interrupted this woman. And because she interrupted this woman, this was an act of white fragility, right? So just a normal fucking human human interaction, she has to make this thing sort of something, she has to make it seem racist. And I just don't quite understand how it benefits also black people to assume that every time someone interrupts you, it's an act of racial aggression. What does that do to the psyche to think that every normal human interaction is just threaded through with just racial aggression? What I love from the interview, which uh, let's drop it right here, is uh, the the woman you interviewed talked about the ways this affected her own thinking in the context of, of getting her to start to rethink and complicate her own totally normal interactions with her colleagues. For example, in a hallway um, a black coworker, black male coworker passed me by and he was wearing a suit and he looked really sharp. And I, I remember saying, looking sharp, like I gave him a compliment. And, and going through this work uh, with Robin, I remember like replaying that, like, you know, interracial interaction I had over and over in my head. And what I came up with that was racist about it was that maybe I like hold black people's fashion to like a lower um, standard. And like, it, like I started asking myself, would I, if he was white, would I have said looking sharp or did I give him that compliment because he's black? So, yeah, I guess the key takeaway of all this is like, there's, there's no empirical research on this stuff. Cause like a lot of race training programs, no one ever bothers to test it, which is bad. And which is a problem social psychologists in particular pointed out. But it sounds like you're saying that there's like a strong case this could make stuff worse in a workplace. Yeah, I mean, so this is just anecdotal, right? This is just one woman's experience. But she told me that her relationships with the people of color that she worked with became more fraught after this experience. And there is not a lot of good evidence that this actually makes workplaces more diverse or lessens sort of individual racism. Yeah. And, and so I think because there's been, I'm not aware of any studies of D'Angelo's approach, I can't say for sure. I just... The evidence we have about like intergroup contact is very much geared in the opposite direction. The contact hypothesis uh, is this classic idea from social psychology, and I won't get too deep into it, but the basic idea is like the way to bring people together is to make them feel like they're members of the same team uh, and they have equal status and stuff like that. The very kumbaya MLK stuff that we can't always achieve in real life, but this is just what the framework you would want in place to make people to ease intergroup tensions. Basically, if you like go down a list of her recommendations, it's all the opposite. It's not make people feel like they're on the same team. It's create different rules for who can cry. It's it's not... I mean, it's to, it's to literally separate them. I mean, the woman that I spoke to in this interview told me about how they would break up into white affinity groups and black affinity groups. I mean, just the name itself just sounds like fucking white power groups. It's just it's crazy. crazy, but literally segregating people. I love I love that part where like as part of the diversity as part of the diversity training come join our white affinity group in the woods we're going to burn across like what is that no no black people allowed <laughs> one other thing that I find sort of incoherent about this is that so she talks about structural racism and this is something we hear about a lot right now especially in the context of police brutality and uh, legislation that you know harms communities particularly communities of color if the problem is structural racism how does it help to focus on the individual. You could say, like, I guess institutions are made of people, and therefore, if everybody is anti-racist, the institutions themselves will become anti-racist. How long do you expect this to fucking take? Um, our friend, our friend Kat Rosenfeld, who's a great writer and has a, a podcast called Feminine Chaos that I recommend everyone check out, had a, had a great tweet about this. The awesome thrill of learning that battling bigotry actually requires an unmitigated laser focus on the most fascinating topic of all, oneself. 
I think that really gets to it. This is sort of the most like narcissistic way of addressing an actual problem in the world, going from each individual and and trying to make you see the light. It's a religious conversion. It's the I guess it's the like the Mormon philosophy of fixing the world. Five minutes ago, seemingly, I was reading Michelle Alexander tell me how compellingly how the vestiges of white supremacy are laced into the criminal justice system. And therefore, like, it doesn't matter if things appear colorblind. Individuals' behavior doesn't matter that much. These are, these are structures. Here's Robin D'Angelo, however many years later. Naming white supremacy changes the conversation in two key ways. It makes the system visible and shifts the locus of change onto white people where it belongs. So she's pretty explicitly saying the locus of change should be on individual white people, particularly the progressive white people. That's not what, like, an understanding of structural racism should be. Like, she thinks that getting progressive white people from eight on the modern racism scale to 10, it's unclear to me what her her theory of change even is. At one point, she actually writes, I believe that white progressives cause the most daily damage to people of color. I define a white progressive as any white person who thinks she is not racist or is less racist. So is it individual white people or is it structures? So <laughs> if you if you object to the fact, if you feel like you are personally not racist, you are not just racist. You are doing the most damage to people of color. To me, that that jumped out at me as revealing the class element here. We've talked on this podcast before how there's this submerged class stuff going on where whenever there's a conversation about an important social issue, it gets dragged into the corner of, of what the lefties are calling the PMC these days, professional managerial class, people who are fairly successful. To say that the, the biggest opponent to equality is like professional black people's annoying coworkers. I mean, has she has this woman ever fucking heard of Mitch McConnell? <laughs> well, not only that, but has she like the whole point of why structural racism is terrible is there are entire neighborhoods of black and brown people where by dint of being born there, you're never going to be able to get paid 80 grand to work in an office next to annoying white right, people. Right, right. Like on the, on the list of issues, it, you can't have it both ways. You can't claim we're living in a white supremacist catastrophe and then focus all this attention on the behavior of like clueless white women who, yes, are annoying and, yes, probably sometimes make it a somewhat hostile workplace. But this is the grift. She, want, she wants progressive white people to put themselves at the center of this struggle as though their behavior is what's causing these big patterns of disparities that are in fact caused mostly by structures. So it's just, it's again, I really think an unintentional grift, but I don't, I've seen so many people recommend this book and I, maybe they just didn't the best, the most charitable explanations. They just didn't read it. That is so sad. If that's the most charitable explanation is that it's like pure ignorance. I know. <laughs> it is. But like, do you, would I'd rather think that of, of people who have recommended it than think they read it and were like, yep, that's a good book. I want other people to read it. So I got into a little battle on this on Instagram, which uh, in part led to me deleting Instagram from my phone. So I, one sort of other funny element about this is that a lot of people think that Robin D'Angelo is black. Um, which makes sense. You know, it's a the book called White Fragility. Her last name is D'Angelo, which, uh, you know, the most famous D'Angelo I can think of, it's a black man. And so somebody sent me uh, a text message that said, like, you know, I was, until now, I, I thought that Robin D'Angelo was black. And so I, I tweeted something about it. And I posted a screenshot of this on Twitter. And I said, just like, heads up to my like, well-meaning friends, you know, if you think that you're buying this book, if you think that buying this book, you're supporting a black woman, you're not. And so this led to sort of an uncomfortable back and forth and even some text messages with a couple of my friends who were telling me not just like, you know, I bought this book and read this book, but I bought this book. I read this book and I learned a lot from this book. And you, sh you too should educate yourself. So this is so so th and this is like progressive white people who I think are genuinely trying to do the right thing, who are appalled by the, the murder of George Floyd, who continue to get these messages that the United States is the most racist country in the world, that everything is terrible, that we're all racist. And so they're trying to do something. I think that's part of it. I think part of it is also that it's just like trendy as fuck. Um, the, the, the cynic in me thinks that probably has just as much to do with it. But, you know, if I'm being charitable, they're trying to do the right thing. And the messages that you're getting from everybody else is this is the way to do the right thing. Right. It, well, and what's interesting to me is to think about the question, like, who is this book really for? And, and what the what are the implicit messages? I think this book is primarily bought by people who, who do not think they're ever going to have an actual close back black friend, that the best they can do is mitigate the awkwardness of their interactions with the two black women at work. And and I think D'Angelo, frankly, is in the same boat. And I sort of, I, again, it's written by someone who does not seem to understand that black people are, believe it or not, very similar to white people. Uh, 
I, that's what's so sad to me. Like it, so I think it's sort of an indictment of America, which is very segregated. And statistics show like a lot of people don't have an interracial friend. My friend group is overwhelmingly white. I'm not trying to, you know, pose on this. I think this book really is, it is not written for people. It's written for people for whom the idea of having a black friend is like unobtainable because they're so nervous they'll trip over their own words. And what's sad about it is they buy this book and I think it makes it much more likely they will trip over their own words because they're no longer comfortable saying the stuff you would say to a white friend. Like your suit looks nice. It's just this whole incredibly depressing revealing grift and yet it's a really effective one that's the most depressing part about this is that uh, the the single biggest beneficiary of this movement uh you know of the black lives matter movement might be robin fucking d'angelo well did you have anything else before i move into one final point i want to make no i just like it's such a weird catch-22 right if you don't think that you're racist and you say you aren't racist that's just more evidence according to robin d'angelo that you're actually racist so the only way to prove that you aren't racist is to admit that you're racist and also, like, one last thing. So in the interview that I did with this woman who had to take uh, a year's worth of these diversity trainings, one thing that she mentioned to me is that white people are instructed not to defend themselves. So if Robin D'Angelo or anybody else accuses you of being racist or being a white supremacist, if you defend yourself, that just proves that you – like, even to even to explain, even to say, no, like, you misinterpreted what I was saying. No, the picture of the black – the blackface picture isn't me. I didn't wear that costume or whatever. Any sort of speaking up for yourself is just further proof that you're racist. Yeah, it, it's, it's just – it's a cult type thing. And – the part I don't want to lose sight of, which ironically we've we've been talking too much white pe- about white people too, is um, imagine, let's just say you're in an office where there's two black people and 18 white people and Robin D'Angelo comes in and you're forced to sit in this training. Can you imagine any situation in which a black person would want to be in that room as Robin D'Angelo is forcing a confrontation with these white people's supposed racism. Wouldn't that be the most unpleasant thing in the world? It sounds so deeply uncomfortable. I'd, I'd, in that person, I would much rather be the white person being called racist than the black person who just has to sit there and squirm as like the the unspoken object of all this. Who? Right. It's so weird that no one like even thinks about that. Like, do people of color want to be involved in these mandatory trainings in which a crazy white woman comes and says comes and says bullshit? Like, right. The um. This is probably the last quote I'm going to do because it's arguably the craziest thing in the book and it goes back to the crying and the stuff. Robin D'Angelo, race relations expert, says, I have certainly been moved to tears by someone's story in cross-racial discussions. And I imagine that sometimes tears are appreciated as they can validate and bear witness to the pain of racism for people of color. But I try to be very thoughtful about how and when to cry. I try to cry quietly so that I don't take up more space and if people rush to comfort me, I do not accept the comfort. I let them know that I am fine so we can move on. This image sums up everything to me. Imagine a black woman in one of these trainings. Robin D'Angelo, because she's crazy, starts crying. Black woman does what humans do. She approaches Robin D'Angelo, tries to hug her. D'Angelo's like, no, and just shrinks into herself in the corner, which would, of course, make the black woman feel shitty because she's a human. That sums it up. This whole thing is it is narcissistic. It is about how the white person feels, about the white person's fascination with their own journey. It is not about black people or people of color that's my theory am i being too mean no this book is about robin d'angelo and her weird fucked up view of black people and white people is this just what happens when you are emerged in this culture there, there's so much to be said here that about the the mixing of capitalism and diversity trainings and just this idea that that offices are now going to be the site of resolving america's race issues which are obviously caused elsewhere and obviously caused in large part by history like who came up with this idea that I mean, I know the answer to that. The answer to that is, especially from the 80s on, companies thought this was a good shield against litigation, which is the other thing. How is this How is this not going to cause lawsuits? That's sort of the irony here, is that something that was probably developed as a shield against litigation. I mean, just like when people hear the interview, uh, the interview in the next episode with this woman who went to these trainings, I mean, it is actually shocking that there haven't been major lawsuits against these companies for subjecting them to this fucking torture. <laughs> imagine the deposition they 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 made me come into a room a woman called me racist and said i wasn't allowed to defend myself also i wasn't allowed to cry and then after that we had the white affinity group dude oh my god and it was this was all done in the name of social justice oh my god this is so twisted people just oh man well, I, okay, I was going to write about this. I feel like I don't have to. I feel like I got it off my chest. And I also, between this... You have purged? I think I've purged 
with my white fragility as well, which is uh, considerable. But have you atoned? Man, I have so much atoning to do. I, um, I'm just a terrible human being, but only part of that is racism. Yeah, only part of that. Only a small part, really. <sighs> well, we're very, uh, we're very open to everyone's thoughts on this. We would love to hear from more people who have gone through this of of any race. I am. I have to say, I don't want to cherry pick or tokenize but if you happen to be a non-white person who has gone through this uh, especially if you disagree with me and think it wasn't that bad i'm i'm sort of inserting myself into this like if it was an anti-semitism training and i was the only jew and people knew that it might be different for, for a black person or a latino person or an asian person but well i mean yeah i mean if i were you know the the one like lesbian in a crowd that was forced to take a, a training about like how you should treat gay people i think i would be really fucking uncomfortable well actually what i think i would do is probably walk up to the stage take the microphone and say treat them like everybody else go home <laughs> right. but it just seems like it would be just like deeply uncomfortable to be the to the person sitting there like oh god yeah doesn't it i'm trying to i'm trying to be like i don't want to it's weird for me to be like this would be uncomfortable for a black person but you switch into any other identity including both of ours and it would clearly be a very unpleasant experience i mean can you imagine being the only podcaster in a room full of a room full of people who somehow hate podcasters just vicious anti-podcast bigots yeah that exists for sure robin d'angelo should do diversity training so podcasters get treated better in society there's all this focus on progressive white people who are a relatively small part of the problem d'angelo does not once mention podcasters who are in fact the biggest purveyors of bigotry in the country she also really neglects to mention gamers <laughs> just like the combination of of d'angelo and gamer culture i don't i can't even envision it in part because we've been recording for i think 12 hours but uh it's enjoyable there should be a, there should be a white fragility video game <laughs> <laughs> oh my god i would actually be surprised if there isn't yet so it's like it's like you you are shooting microaggressions out at black people, right. but you also control something else that can knock them down before they get there. Every time a white woman cries, a black person is murdered. <laughs> this is such a fucked up book. There is, I do find it ironic that she has this like major problem with like female tears, with like white woman tears. And yet she talks about how she makes white women cry all the time. Well, also like the, the male equivalent of that is men like banging the table, like... The percentage of I want I want statistics on this. The, the percentage of men who just like fucking breathe deeply and close their eyes and just wait for it to be over versus the number like pounding the table and I'm sure there's some of them because she's the worst. But like I'm sure this book was thoroughly fact checked. <laughs> Did you know sla there was still slavery until 1998? <laughs> Did you know that black women still cannot vote? It's crazy. It is crazy. Black women are still not allowed to vote in the United States. Did you know, so so white tears have a substance that reacts poorly with melanin, <laughs> so it actually literally, it burns the skin of black people. I don't know. Tati, don't you think we try to be even-handed and balanced? We're very, like, we're nuanced mongers usually, right? Yeah, I, yeah. If this book had, was, like, being dragged through the mud, we probably would have tried to find the good thing about yeah. it. But this book is not. This book is being held up. I've got a glowing review in The New Yorker, not Califasani's. <laughs> the white woman The white woman gave it a glowing review. I know. A white woman gave it a fucking glowing <laughs> review. The Washington Post, just, just uh, also a person of color, wrote a, um, wrote a bad review in The Washington Post. But most of the coverage of this book has just been glowing. She was on Jimmy Fallon, too. So this does not, like, just exist in these sort of, like, academia and corporate bedrooms. This is also being, like, beamed into people's fucking televisions right now. And I think that's actually a problem. Oh, my God. So, Jesse, yeah. here's the question. I know we're generally not in favor of book burning, but would you blame this one? <laughs> this, is, this is making me restand so <laughs> – this is making me rethink so many of my fundamental values. Book burning, freedom of speech, First Amendment. This is all up in the air now. Are you going to put on your white hood and uh, and start a crossfire and throw this book on it? This is like, it just, it is such a sick joke that this book is like, there are so many books you could read, like any book about him. This is a history. This is a point I'm borrowing from, I think, um, Adam Serwer, who, who doesn't like me, but he, he tweeted accurately, like literally any book about history would be better to read than sort of an anti-racist etiquette manual. So, right. Uh, maybe I'll leave the last word with a, a person of color who is very right about that. Me? <laughs> Should we wrap this up? I'm going to go fucking crazy if I have to think about this book one more minute. Oh, yeah, I got to go start a bonfire in the backyard. This has been Blocked and Reported. I'm Jesse Single, and remember, if you start crying during this podcast and you're white, please leave the room. And I'm Katie Herzog. And also remember, all white people are born racist, and the only way to repent is to donate to Blocked and Reported.